the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. No, I am not Seth Liebson. I am Hugh Hallman. I'm joined by Lewis Hallman here in the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, brought to you by veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. We are delighted to be here and thank our friend Seth Liebson for allowing us to uh, usurp his airways uh, and uh, get to speak to his audience. We invite you to give us a call at 602 508 0960. Uh, we were in the last hour talking perhaps too much about China and our FBI directors raising the alarm bell over the fact that the, the Chinese are constantly, the Chinese government are constantly uh, testing our cybersecurity and uh, seeking ways to prepare themselves to destroy our infrastructure. Uh, when the time comes at their election. And we talked in the last hour about the fact that uh, while that is always the case, the U.S. is actually pretty well positioned to respond. Without going back over that entire conversation, I did want to note some of the things that the FBI director said uh, and uh, contrast them. So this is our FBI director talking about the Chinese government uh, and its attacks. And he, he says, quote, uh, by the way, the, the, the CCP is the Chinese Communist Party. He likes to use acronyms a lot. And so, quote, the CCP's dangerous actions, China's multi-pronged assault on our national and economic security, make it the defining threat of our generation. Unquote. He continues, quote, when I described the CCP as a threat to American safety a moment ago, I meant that in some way I meant that in some ways, quite literally, there have been far too little public focus on the fact that the PRC, that's the People's Republic of China, by the way, the PRC hackers are targeting our critical infrastructure, our water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, our transportation systems, and the risk that poses to every American. American requires our attention now, unquote. That's the alarm bell he's ringing. Now, these outrageous statements that the director or our FBI made should be contrasted with statements made back in 2016 by a fellow who was then running for president. He was excoriated for these statements, and he said things like, quote, China's upset because of the way Donald Trump is talking about trade with China. They're ripping us off, folks. It's time. I'm so happy they're upset. How about this one? Quote, China is the biggest environmental polluter in the world by far. They do nothing to clean up their factories and laugh at our stupidity. Unquote. How about this one? Quote, we can't continue to allow China to rape our country. And that's what they've been doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. Unquote. And finally, quote, China is neither ally or friend. They want to beat us and to own our country, period, unquote. The man, of course, who said that was President Donald Trump as he was running for president. These were tweets that he was excoriated over because he was creating a rift between China and the United States, positioning the United States as understanding that China 
as a government was seeking constantly and continuously to rip off the U.S. government. What was it doing? It was strategically and it continues strategically to steal intellectual property from the United States. When companies did deals with China, part of the requirement was that they reveal and supply the basis for intellectual property which China then began ripping off. For example, Apple Computer and having uh, phones built in China uploaded its software that would run those uh, cell phones, and magically, Chinese companies could then produce cell phones that were identical to Apple phones without actually being sold by Apple or Apple getting paid for the value of what it had created. All of the uh, big tech firms were complaining to the administration during uh, Barack Obama's presidency, and he did nothing. Well, Donald J. Trump took it seriously and went after China. And what happened? He was excoriated for it. The press covered him continuously in 16 and 17 as being someone who was uh, causing problems with China. They said things like uh, that. Early in Trump's presidency, his close advisors fought bitterly over whether tariffs would help. Why? Because he kept escalating the trade fight with China, saying he was going to cheap, uh, steeply increase uh, tariffs. And yet, at the same time, these brilliant minds were talking about the fact that Donald Trump, quote, has withdrawn or damaged U.S. leadership around the world. And China has seized the opportunity, unquote. This is the press excoriating and commenting on Donald Trump being unfit to be a leader in these kinds of battles. And yet here we are seven years later with the very attackers now understanding the battle we're in. So let's even let's even focus on this a little more here, because it is that very notion of America first that requires a nationalist, internationalist set of engagement. What are you talking about, Lou? So, nationalist or internationalist? I'm the foggiest idea. What I know. That sounds say. like a contradiction in terms, uh, doesn't a, it? A, a, uh, yes. A, it's, a, it's like the, the world's smallest midget, right? Or tallest midget is the, the nationalist, internationalist. Well, we certainly don't use those terms, but of course it would be an oxymoron right, rather right. than a moron from oxy. So, so uh, when we're talking about internationalism, engagement with the, the international community, uh, we can think about two axes. The first is, who gets to decide what policy we're making? Who is in charge of setting the strategy? What do you mean by that? So when we're dealing with with international affairs, uh, we could either have the U.S. dictate terms, decide where it wants to focus its resources under its own interest and for its own people, or the U.S. could cede power and join in collaboration with larger international or supranational agencies. This would be the UN. This would be the European Union. We are utterly opposed to ceding our sovereignty and our decision-making ability to larger agencies. We believe that the U.S.'s sovereignty should be uh, a sufficient basis. Meaning you and me, for ones. Correct. Now, the other piece, then, is... How are we engaged with the world? Do we go out and engage with the world or do we sit back behind our ocean moats and let the world function on its own and play a reactive game? This was a strategy that we had tried before World War II and it didn't Primarily go very well led for by us. Republicans. Right. Now, however, uh, uh, and I think Trump understands this primarily, we, we can have a policy 
of international engagement, being active in the world and setting American strategic values and, and, and being that shining city on the hill rather than retreating behind our ocean moats while simultaneously keeping American sovereignty and American interest as the supreme guiding virtue of our foreign policy. And Trump, I believe, primarily understood that and has been the first president to understand that probably since George Herbert Walker Bush or Ronald Reagan. I agree. And the interesting thing I'm puzzling over is there are now Republicans forming up in what was the pre-World War II isolationist mode. Right. And and that concerns me because the U.S. and its citizens ought to be engaged in the world on grounds on which we select, not be reactive or forced to respond to other people's dictates. And so, for example, Laura Ingram is now arguing that the U.S. should not respond to the drone attack that killed three Americans in Jordan because we are not prepared to do so. Now, I would argue, are we fully prepared for World War III or fighting on a two-front war with China and, uh, and Russia? Absolutely not. We know this. We've talked about this on the show. The U.S. has twice now engaged in a systematic review of our military forces called the America Strategic Posture Review. And in that most recent report, completed last November, the committee concluded that the U.S. is ill-prepared for a two-front war. That does not mean, however, that we are incapable of responding to the likes of an attack that killed three Americans. Right. The notion that it has to be either we do absolutely nothing and we allow these attacks to go unchallenged or we start World War III. That is a false dichotomy that is put out by, by again, these, these caterwauling sissies who, who are demanding that we do absolutely nothing and that we cede our authority and strategic autonomy to larger interests. In very quick notion, why don't you describe what Ronald Reagan did when uh, we were attacked? I'll try to be quick. So Operation Praying Mantis uh, was, was launched after a U.S. military ship was hit uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, and I believe 1987, no Americans were killed, but a few injuries occurred. And in response, we sunk half of Iran's Navy and three oil rigs that were offshore uh, over the course of about two days. It was one of the most beautiful uh, 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 lightning responses that one had ever seen. And the Iranians utterly and completely backed down. And that may be why, when we come back, we'll discuss Iran's most recent pronouncements about why, if we just be nice to them, they won't now engage in war with us. They may have a longer memory than we do. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We are on the Seth Liebson Show here on KKNT 960. The Patriot, please give us a call at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman. Just before the break, we were launching into uh, the fact that uh, three U.S. service personnel were killed in a drone strike in Jordan. And uh, at this stage, the U.S. has done nothing about it. We'd gotten there because we were talking about the idea that uh, Lewis and I are nationalists. We believe in the uh, the mission of the United States and that we believe its views, its principles, its founding philosophy is worth defending, that it is unique in the history of the world. 
But in that context, we also believe it is crucially important uh, where it was not as important in the first 150 years of this country's history. It is now crucially important as the success story that we are that the U.S. protect its interests abroad. That's also in part because the world has become connected together uh, so closely uh, due to the fact that uh, 100 years ago it took a, a very long while to get from uh, the United States to Europe, and now in about six hours, one can fly from one point to the other and just about any place else in the world. I've been on the other side of the planet, literally 12 and 13 hours different time zone on the other side of the planet, a trip that takes me all of 24 hours. And the fact that the U.S. is that closely connected to the rest of the world means that we have to care about what the rest of the world is doing and how our interests are served or misserved by those activities. And uh, so, Lewis, I'm going to pass it back to you in terms of talking about, for example, with Iran behind the scenes using its sock puppets to kill Americans, what should we do and what have we done in the past? Well, our, our history with Iran is uh, a long and involved one. Now, the tension in the Middle East, to no one's great surprise, for as long as the Middle East has been politically relevant, has been about managing the flows of fossil fuels. Before World War II, the Middle East wasn't relevant. It was irrelevant utterly. Uh, the Ottomans ruled large swaths of it, and those portions of it that we now care very much were nothing more than nomads and shacks, basically. Well, that's between World War I and World War II. Fuel started, oil became correct. important. Yes, absolutely. And uh, up until about uh, uh, 1978, I believe, the U.S. had uh, backed the Shah of Iran um, and uh, un until the current regime in Iran uh, overthrew the Shah uh, and uh, uh, seized power. Now, Iran is interesting because unlike many other powers in the Middle East, particularly our, our ally, uh, well, ostensible ally, Saudi Arabia, which is predominantly Sunni, Iran is predominantly Shia Muslim. These are the two major sects um, and have continual uh, uh, warring differences. Now, right. it's not enough that they hate Christians and Jews. They hate one another. Correct. Yes. And one, one of the things that's very interesting about Iran's uh, foreign policy is that it knows it is fairly weak. It actually has a very large land army, but most of its forces are used to police and control its own populace. That's generally what you see in these sorts of uh, illiberal autocratic style regimes. Russia and China both behave somewhat similarly in that regard. Uh, Iran, however, uh, generally exercises its strategic capability through the use of proxy forces, notably uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthis in Yemen, as well as groups in Iraq while fighting was ongoing there. Uh, Iran is not a wealthy country. It is unable to make uh, a very significant uh, uh, domestic arms. It can manufacture uh, drones domestically, but it can't do necessarily things like airframes and the like. Most of its air inventory is still old U.S. inventory from before the Shah's fall uh, in the 70s, so totally outdated. Uh, and, and they have to rely principally on uh, sort of a special operations kind of playbook where they foment resistance and unrest and sectarian violence in other countries to try and destabilize the Sunni majorities in those regions. So now that we understand a little bit more about what Iran is and how it operates and, and why it operates, um, let's talk a little bit about 
how we respond to this and, and what the U.S. Uh, uh, involvement in the Middle East should be. Now, U.S. involvement in the Middle East was historically significantly elevated uh, um, and started really to decline uh, with our pullouts from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan over the last five years. Um, but since 2012 or so and the advent of the shale revolution, the U.S. has actually become energy independent, where previously our tremendous involvement with the Middle East was to ensure that fossil fuels kept flowing, which means that effectively our modern society and our modern way of life can continue because we are totally dependent on those, those we were totally dependent on those fossil fuels. Now, however, with the shale revolution, with our ability to frack and, and produce energy in a way that was, by the way, completely opposed by environmentalists and leftists for the last three decades before giving us the strategic freedom. Uh, uh, this now basically frees us from having to be involved in the Middle East for our own sake. I'm going to put a footnote here, keeping in mind that uh, the, the Biden administration has reduced our capacity to develop our own resources. Right. So we're under some strain. Now, that said, we know that the resources are there. So if things get shut off again, we have the ability to move pretty quickly and start up our resource pipelines. And where conventional oil wells typically can take you know six months to a year to restart with a, with a fracking site, you can do that in as little as six weeks. So our, our supply is also significantly more flexible to market shocks and volatility as far as price is concerned, which is a, another large, um, big strategic win for us. But overall, why are we still in the Middle East? We are there principally because our allies are there and because the, the power projection that would come out of the Middle East is profoundly anti-Western and profoundly illiberal. So to the degree that, that we, we value our, our, our culture and that we value our allies there and that we value the ability of our allies in Europe and in Japan and in India and around the world to be able to keep the lights on, we need to be paying attention to what's going on there. The Middle East is now effectively devolving into a three-part struggle between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey for influence. And it will be those three powers that then shape and, and, and determine the fewer. And now we have to choose what side of that very, very ugly three-part deal we want to be associated with. We have either the horrifying atrocities that Iran has committed. We have Saudi Arabia with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the bribing of the Pakistani Air Force to, to use their nukes as a self-defense option, and a number of other foul, foul policies. Or we have Turkey, which uh, has been losing its historic secularism uh, that emerged over the 20th century and has been going more and more uh, Islamist over the past uh, uh, five or six years under the leadership of President Erdogan. So we have a region that is going to the darkness, I would say, uh, uh, really imperiled. And it's one that does not necessarily existentially threaten us. So our involvement there should be careful. It should be measured. It should be ginger. But we can certainly afford to be there. We can certainly afford to represent our in interests there. Not only can we afford to, I would argue that we have a moral obligation to. We cannot allow our servicemen and women to be targeted unilaterally without uh, any kind of recompense whatsoever. And in contrast, as somebody who served uh, President Reagan, uh, Operation Praying Mantis demonstrated that if you damage U.S. personnel, we will damage you. Uh, we did the same thing with Libya in response to an attack on Americans and uh, did significant damage that 
reduce their ability to attack us again. We'll come back and continue this conversation. I'm Hugh Holman. He's Lewis Holman. We're on the Seth Liebson Show at KKNT 960 The Patriot. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Seth, thank you for the opportunity to be on your airwaves and to uh, speak to your listeners, if not speak with them. Ladies and gentlemen, you're invited to call us at 602-508-0960. We'd love to have you in the conversation. I'm Hugh Holman, joined by Lewis Holman. And we were just describing the Middle East and uh, why it is or is not relevant to us anymore. Uh, we left out, of course, Israel is a longtime ally uh, that the U.S. recognized upon its independence. In the same way, I might tell you that the U.S. was the very first country to recognize Kazakhstan's independence. Kazakhstan declared independence on December 16th, 1991, and the U.S. was the first country to recognize their independence on Christmas Day, in fact, of 1991. That's because, yes, uh, anybody who's listened to my voice on this show knows that I spend a lot of time in Kazakhstan working to secure that ally's continuing presence in a very bad neighborhood. Specifically directly between Russia and China. Yeah, well, uh, you've got, the, as they say, the dragon immediately to the east and the, the bear immediately to the north, but also all the crazy stands in the Middle East immediately to the south. And that's what brought us here, is that we're talking about the fact that the U.S. has interests in the Middle East, and we know that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party currently are battling to sustain Israel's place in the Middle East from crazy activity. And yet the Democrats are suffering from a division within their party where they have folks who have, over the last 30 years, fallen in love with the Palestinians. Think about the Palestinians as a group of people. We've got about 9 million people in Israel within the territory of Israel. And the interesting thing about that problem is that there has been a long call by Israel to say, we don't need two states. Palestinians would be welcome to live here if they would agree to live in peace. But when your neighbor keeps pulling out a gun and sticking it to your head and sometimes pulling the trigger and killing some of your family members, you're a little wary of that. So now the call is for a two-state solution. And yet longtime uh, folks following Israel understand that from the founding, you had the idea that we, it need not be partitioned into separate states, but instead that everyone who lived there would be welcome. That was not the case for all the Jews in the Arab states. Upon the founding of Israel, more than 800,000 Jews were forced out of Arab states and forced to relocate, losing all of their property, losing all of their possessions, losing all of their rights in their original homes where their families had lived for thousands of years. It was okay, apparently, under the UN concepts that Jews could be forced out of their homes in Arab states, but Palestinians have to be located within Israel in a separate state carved out of it. That's the conundrum we're facing. It also seems to be perfectly okay that uh, all of the Arab states are able to, against international law, refuse entry of Palestinian refugees. And yet the U.S. is condemned continually by leftists for not taking in every person on every corner of the world, whether or not their country is contiguous with the U.S. or not. Let's say that again. 
because the point Lewis is making is that here we hear the the left screaming about the rights of Palestinians to live peacefully in Palestine from the river to the sea. That is implying that all Jews should be removed from Israel and the entire country turned back over to Palestinians. Both ethnicities have a historic claim to that land. They've all lived there for thousands of years. And yet, all we hear about is the plight of Palestinians with its own UN agency set up to protect them in a very different way than any other uh, ethnicity on the planet when they have been forced out or put under stress. And yet, how do the other Arab states view and treat Palestinians? Rather like vermin, frankly. Well, why don't you describe what uh, some have described them as? Uh, uh, well, the uh, Iranians, because they use uh, the Palestinians as proxy forces, uh, use them principally as disposable troops. They are uh, uh, walking body bags, effectively, to absorb Western casualties and to start Iran's great jihad. And have been referred to as? Cockroaches and cannon fodder. That is true. That is the official Iranian position. The Egyptians closed their border when Israel said it needed to go in and get Hamas out of the Gaza Strip. And what did the Egyptians do, fellow fellow Muslims? Close the border and refuse to allow Palestinians to cross the border, even temporarily, to avoid war. That's how the Middle Eastern Arabs are treating Palestinians. They pretend that they are somehow a, an important class of people and yet simultaneously assure their destruction because it is a convenient tool to bludgeon Israel and the West. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman. We are grateful to our friend Seth Liebson for allowing us to fill his airways, spend time in his uh, studio, and get to uh, speak with you, our audience. We're grateful for this opportunity. We were talking uh, before the break about the U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East and that Republicans understand why Israel as our ally deserves our support and protection from crazy people committing genocide and murder. Now, I just use the word genocide. And, of course, the left is talking about genocide of Palestinians. The difference is the fact that Palestinians were seeking to murder Jews and had the intention of murdering Jews. That is the concept of creating genocide. The Israelis, on the other hand, are seeking to stop Hamas from murdering Jews and are trying to avoid, as best they can, the deaths of innocent Palestinians. But the reality is that every death of a Palestinian is on the head of the Hamas fighters who went into Israel and murdered 1,200 people. We understand the U.S. has an interest in the Middle East. We have an interest in supporting our friends. And recently, with three service members' deaths from a drone strike in Jordan, I would argue we have an interest in demonstrating that one cannot murder Americans uh, so easily. In this instance, however, Lewis and I wanted to add that if we can recognize a strategic and international interest for the U.S. in the Middle East— why are we having such difficulty understanding why it's in the U.S. interests to assure that our ally Ukraine is protected against the direct action by Russia to overtake an otherwise independent 
country. Keep in mind, we hear on a daily basis, and we are frustrated by this, that the press loves to report data from uh, Hamas about the number of innocent Palestinians who have been killed by Israel in the Gaza Strip. And they always say, with two-thirds of them, women and children. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Russia has been attacking directly the civil infrastructure, the infrastructure to support civilians in Ukraine. That is their only objective. Destroy apartment buildings, destroy water systems, destroy transportation systems that support the society. They're not attacking military targets. They're attacking civilian targets. We should be as incensed about that as the 1,200 Jews murdered by Hamas. And here's why Lewis will tell you it's more important. Well, before I get to why it's more important that we we engage ourselves actively in Ukraine, I want to actually empathize with those that that are unconcerned. I want to understand their position because Ukraine is not an ally in the same way that Israel is. We actually don't have the same kind of defensive military alliance in that – were Ukraine to be invaded, we are not obligated to deploy troops to defend them. So we then, if Ukraine is not a formal military ally, need to justify why our interest exists in Ukraine. And I will tell you, Russia is not only interested in Ukraine. Russia is currently trying to fortify Uh, several of a series of nine strategic choke points. Ukraine is only the fourth, fifth, and sixth of these choke points. uh, Russia would likely continue past Ukraine into Hungary, Poland, Romania, and other countries. Now, why then are we interested in a preemptive uh, uh, attack on Ukraine? Well, partially because if uh, uh, an attack on Ukraine succeeded and those other countries were to be attacked, then we would be obligated to put troops on the ground. And we would rather not put troops on the ground. We actually value the lives of our servicemen and women. And in doing so, we would rather reduce the probability that they need to be deployed. The second piece that's going on here... A long-term vision, in other words, of our defense. Correct. The second piece, then, that's going on here is that Russia uh, uh, is the state with more nuclear weapons than any other on Earth. Now, these nuclear weapons are in large parts old, unreliable, and uh, uh, in many ways uh, saddled to obsolete delivery systems. We can see this uh, uh, because the Soviet Union was was uh, having an existential meltdown about our Star Wars missile defense systems back in the 80s. And Thank the you, Soviets Ronald Reagan, made, by the way, for pursuing it. Right, at, uh, at which point uh, they have made very little... Uh, gains to their to their uh, uh, programs while we have been continuing to improve on our defenses. However, Russia still, you know, is, is a power that exists with perhaps more than 9,000 nuclear warheads. This is an existential problem for every human being on the planet because they are led by a megalomaniac who is, is uh, becoming potentially more and more unmoored. Even if those nukes are not fired in anger as a part of Uh, the Ukrainian military conflict, Russia is on its last legs as a state. Its demography is currently imploding. The reason that Russia is attacking Ukraine now is that between 2015 and 2025, due to that demographic pressure, the size of Russia's armed forces would have to be cut in half, and then it would lose the ability to 
even control its own border, let alone launch these kinds of expeditionary campaigns. To be clear about that demographic, uh, Russians are not having children. Right. And so their population is shrinking. And they didn't have children in the 1990s when I was born because the Soviet Union had just collapsed and everything in Russia was even worse than it is now, if that could be believed. And so... We are left then with Russia lashing out our age-old adversary as a rump state of what it once was when it used to be the Soviet Union. And we are left in the strategic position as Americans of managing the collapse and failure of the Russian state. My concern here, my existential concern for us is that Russia totally fails in Ukraine. We get everything that we wanted, but because of a lack of U.S. engagement, Russia collapses into a series of ethnic uh, uh, conclaves, and those 6,000 nuclear weapons start flowing across the border. We saw what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union with the movement of small arms to Africa. I am worried that there will be a larger scale problem because the nukes are much more centralized in Russia proper. And those who want to denigrate uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush have to keep in mind that when the Soviet Union collapsed, he and then the following president, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, worked diligently and very quickly to secure all the nuclear weapons in all the countries outside of Russia itself. So we entered agreements with Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan sought to and gave up the nuclear weapons it held during Soviet times, as did Ukraine. And the exchange we gave Ukraine specifically, the Budapest Memorandum, said that we would protect its borders. So although we do not have the, as Lewis would say, depth of the strategic agreement with Israel, we do have an agreement with Ukraine that said that we would hold their borders sacrosanct. And then Barack Obama turned his back to that agreement and allowed Russia to take Crimea. Why on earth would we allow the understudy to Barack Obama fail us this badly? It is because he failed to demonstrate strength that Russia rolled into Ukraine proper. And in my view, it is not in the U.S. interest to allow that to continue. When we come back, I'm going to close this out and try to give you my best argument, ladies and gentlemen, why all of us on this side of the aisle ought to be engaged internationally and specifically engaged with the battle between Russia and Ukraine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman. We are grateful to have had the chance to be here for a couple of hours. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm going to try to put a big bow on this, as Seth would ask us to do, uh, regarding what we've tried to talk about in the last couple of hours, and that is Lewis and I believe strongly in the nation of the United States and the philosophy and the principles on which it was founded. That would make us nationalists. Now, the left would say, gee, we're somehow Nazis because we're nationalists in that regard. To which we say we're civic nationalists, not ethnic nationalists, you unbelievable morons. Yes. So we believe in the in the enterprise that is the United States, that it was developed to provide people with a maximum amount of liberty and freedom to care for themselves and their families and head in the directions they wanted to as long as they didn't interfere with other people's rights to do the same. Now, that's a pretty short version of the Federalist Papers, but there it is. Now, in the international context, we are both engaged internationally precisely because it's in the U.S. interests to be so. We talked about the fact that it is clear why the U.S. has an interest in the Middle East. It used to be all about oil. 
it's no longer really all about oil because the U.S. is now independent in its opportunity to generate resources from oil and gas and other other uh, similar sources of power. But it is still in our interest because, as Lewis noted, we've got a lot of evildoers in the Middle East who seek to destroy the United States. We saw that on 9-11. We, we were argued about that we attacked the wrong nation because the Wahhabists who ultimately and fundamentally attacked us on 9-11 uh, were supported by, ultimately, Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. But the reality is... The Middle East still is a problem for us. And strategically, we need to be prepared to stay on top of that problem. As I have argued in the past, we have needed to stay involved in Afghanistan precisely for the flypaper strategy. Keep the terrorists in Afghanistan busy in Afghanistan and prevent them from coming out and destroying Europe and the Western world. Well, now I see the same issue in Ukraine. Yes, I do believe it's crucially important that we do so cost effectively, that the United States not spend its entire treasure supporting other nations at the expense of our nation's interests. But the reason I think what we are doing now, as Lewis articulated in the last segment, is to prevent us from having to engage in a larger war as Russia were to be successful as it thought it would be in 30 days and take over Ukraine, that it would then enter the field in other countries. And our using Ukraine to fight the battle with Russia assures that we are cost-effectively battling and reducing Russia's ability to threaten us. To paraphrase Sun Tzu, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear victory in a hundred battles. Those that would have us isolate ourselves and refuse to engage with the international community would consign us to defeat. I don't want an even 50-50 split. I want the U.S. to have a 100% victory rate. Let's be engaged. Let's be smart. Let's watch what's going on and guide strategy. We've seen defeat in the past. Let's not repeat that. We need a new president to bring us to strength. Thank you for being with us. God bless and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.